Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major, and welcome to another of the Questions and Tangents episodes. These ones seem to always be very popular, and as someone said to me in an email recently, it's a bit like sitting listening to skippers spinning yarns in a bar, so that uh, sounds about right, although I am, this table is bereft of drinks, which is a pretty... Uh, Pretty, pretty sorry situation, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll soldier on somehow. So uh, questions and uh, tangents is uh, me reading emails and then setting off on tangents that occur to me. So I shall start with one from one of our longest uh, supporters, that's Lan on Lantau, the uh, mysterious LOL of, uh, of Hong Kong. Um, I had wondered if he was the uh, previous skipper of uh, the first vessel I ever sailed on in any kind of serious capacity, which was Jifong out of Hong Kong. I know that the previous skipper before I got there was a was a Len, but it seems not. No, Len is actually from Switzerland. He's a pilot. He's living on uh, on Lantau Island in, uh, in 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 Hong Kong. If you don't know, Lantau Island is a, a huge island which is to the west of Hong Kong, almost as big as Hong Kong Island itself, I think. And it's where the new airport was built. So there's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of change there. When I first started going to Lantau in '96, it was like the back of nowhere. There's like dogs chasing up down the streets and there's hardly any cars. I think there's like one road that used to go up to the monastery at the top. And anyway, well, that's been blown apart by the fact that the Hong Kong government built one of the largest airports in the world there. And Len is a, uh, a guy that's flying the planes in and out of there, making it all work. But importantly to me and importantly to this podcast, Len has been one of the most stalwart uh, supporters of what we're doing, uh, the West About campaign, Patreon, all that kind of stuff. So Thank you very much uh, for writing to me and just uh, sharing a little bit about yourself, Len. I hope you don't mind me sharing that. He's, uh, he says, I participated in sailing very sporadically until 2012 when I bought a used Dart 18 and joined the Lantau Boat Club. I upgraded to part ownership of a NACRA 16 catamaran a few years ago. Uh, one of our former club mates has uh, recently bought a 38-foot sloop, so I'm hoping to gain some, air quotes, big boat sailing as well. He's studying the RWA navigation and seamanship course uh, with a view to passing the RWA competent crew. Len, upgrade, man, upgrade. You're, you're a skipper on an aeroplane. You can, you can be more than a competent crew on a boat. All your navigation knowledge, your maths knowledge, your weather knowledge, your all that stuff. Just And I would say this to anybody, if you're thinking of getting into sailing, Unless you literally don't know anything about how anything works, read the Competent Crew book. It's brilliant, um, and uh, it does have a lot of details, words about you know the, the jargon, the lingo that is sailing, that is that kind of impenetrable barrier that seems to surround sailing. But if you've got half a brain about you, start having a look at the RWA Yacht Master course, because that at least gives you an idea of like where is this going. And a lot of the concepts, you might actually be able to, dovetail them into things that you do in other areas of your life you know you could be a trucker and know about uh, hitches and bends and knots you could be an airline pilot and know about the weather you might find that you're already on your way to that syllabus it's a theory test to begin with the RWA um, yacht master theory is uh, an exam that you take which nowadays can be done online and actual course is I think it's like 400 or 500 pounds or something like that if you want to upgrade that to actually being the full-on qualification, then you have to go and do the practical thing. And that's really where the, the rubber meets the road. That's where you do need to know what you're doing on a boat. You need to be hands-on, um, au fait with how the boat works and all the various techniques and the details. You also then need to be able to command a crew and keep them safe. So pursuing the Yacht Master syllabus, even at quite an early stage, I think is, um, is useful. And what I'd say is that 
you could spend the same amount of time doing the competent crew course and be able to go on a boat and go, oh, that's called the leech and that's called the luff and that's called a bowline. You probably might already know quite a lot of that stuff anyway if you have an interest in sailing. It's better to be pursuing a syllabus that stretches you and you might be looking at the tide and going, oh, okay, which way is it running now and how high is it and where are we at springs and you know, what's the leeway on this course and what's the course? You'd be asking a different level of question if you started out uh, looking at the Yacht Master course uh, right from the beginning. So a little bit of uh, advice. I'm sure if you're able to pilot an aircraft, my goodness me, that's so much more technical than what I do. I think you'd be able to jump right in and take over. So yeah, thanks for uh, to for writing and just telling me a little bit about yourself, Len. Thank you so much to say for your ongoing um, support. It's been fantastic. The The Patreon thing, I've talked about it a few times, but I can only reiterate, reiterate again. Um, if you're not aware of it, Patreon is a system whereby I think it's kind of really designed for artists and, and musicians and the world we live in now, the interconnectivity that we have, we're used, perhaps, you know, I was born in 77, but I'm used at that point that you're going to have a band and they're going to have a manager and the manager is going to talk to a record company and the record company is going to talk to some, you know, event promoter and little by little by little what the band does gets dissolved down and dissolved down till they get some fraction of the royalties from whatever they've earned and i think that in the world we live in now there's lots of ways of shortcutting that system now clearly i'm not a band it would be i don't know what to be some kind of like existential stream of consciousness rant if i was going to be a, in a band but um the, the point is that the, the, the structures which have been put in place to help those kind of artists who are quite divorced from their audience because of the, the spread of their audience, those things also work for lots of other skill sets. So you can go to Patreon, there's people doing artwork, carpentry, micro, digital microelectronics, like anything and everything you can think of. You can get right to the heart. You can talk directly to the person that does it. And there's no, like, there's no middle ground. There's no middleman. There's no, there's no one getting in between you and that person you can connect directly so that's what patreon is um and i'm over there at patreon.com forward slash the mariner but those people that um have been supporting me for well, 18 months some people now since we started it i can only say again through 2020 through the early part of 2021 where my business was just totally shut down the people on patreon those couple of dollars a month my goodness me did they help so yeah thank you so much and thank you thank you len specifically who else we got here oh we've got bruce williams all right bruce what are you saying here he says it's been very cool to see the latest and hear about the trip to pick up the new boat ah uh, yes of course we went over to europe and we picked up our maxi called weddell which i think is going to be renamed osprey that's what we're thinking at the moment it's kind of out there if you've got any uh, thoughts on that I say Osprey because literally Ospreys circle the boat every day down here in Nova Scotia. When I was in the UK, I remember as a kid, they got to a point where they had two mating pairs of Ospreys left in the wild in the UK. There was two birds, two individuals um, in the wild. And so for me, it was always this like um, near mythical bird, you know, you come to Nova Scotia. It's like shite hawks. Uh, the, every second bird's a flipping osprey, you know? So, um, <laughs> but uh, it's also a beautiful bird. <laughs> it's a, a bird based on the sea. And we have another boat that's called Falcon. So, you know, it kind of seems, seems fair. So, Bruce says, um, the story certainly took a turn. Yes, it did. If you haven't followed that, there is a new video going to go out on YouTube first, which is compiled of all of the video that I took during the process of going from 
um, heading to Europe to pick up the Maxi Longobarda and then ending up coming back from Europe with the Maxi Weddle. Like, it was a pretty strange story. There's loads of video I took in between, but the way things fell out, it just didn't kind of end up um, getting into uh, onto YouTube as quick as you might have done because, well, I'll share that with you if you like. I filmed it all on my phone. And the problem with the phone is that it all goes up to the cloud, right? Which is great, leaves more space on your phone. But the guys that are doing all the video editing are having huge problems trying to get it back down off the cloud. Um, they seem to have all sorts of downloading issues. Things have been cut short. Things have not got the right quality. So we will not be doing that again is the upshot from all that. I have been uh, given my marching orders by uh, Justin from Picnic Studios, the uh, the guy that's overseeing all the stuff that's happening on YouTube and uh, our digital content. And uh, we've got a new camera and uh, more kind of like along the lines of a, a GoPro, something like that, actually slightly different camera. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a lot easier. So anyway, I'm getting, <laughs> talk about tangents, Jesus. Okay, so uh, he says, it's interesting to see the last generation of the Maxis and how they evolved over the years. Yeah, absolutely right. That's one thing that we talked about on the video about Weddell. The, the point at 1997, Maxis had been boats in the late 80s, early 90s. They raced literally like around the cans, you know, at yacht clubs, they were big regatta boats. That's primarily what they're doing. Anything over 70 foot is a maxi. So you've got like 80, 90 foot boats that are charging around with crews of 20, 25 on board. And they were just the, the, the ultimate kind of boat. So the, the comparable now would be something like the Super Yacht Cup. But then when it came to the round the world races, the maxis had dominated. But in 1993, the boat Yamaha, which I used to own, the Whitbread 60, she came in only six hours behind Endeavour that won the overall event in 1997 in the Whitbread race. And that firmly identified to everybody that with an elapsed time that was only six hours behind a boat that was 50% bigger than her. Remember Endeavour's like 89 foot. Suddenly everyone realized like, oh, okay, with a little bit of tweaking, this can be just as fast as a maxi. So maxis after 93, there were the, the hill had been climbed. And then it's like, okay, it's, it's in descent phase now. What's happening next? By 1997, the next edition of the Whitbread race, it was all 60 footers. They were all Whitbread 60s. And then it got into the Volvo 60s later on. And apart from Volvos going up to the Volvo 70s, which are very fast, but very lightly built and we didn't kind of stay with that for very long. The Maxis are kind of done. So the Maxi which we have now is uh, a Mistral, a Grand Mistral 80. And there was eight of them built for a race which was mooted to set off in 1997. Basically Whitbread had started to get to the end of their sponsorship uh, agreement with that race. And they kind of wanted to get out of it. Volvo were not yet on the scene. And um, there was a thought amongst the, the sailing uh, bods of the time that maybe there'd be a different race that Whitbread was dying and should have a different race. It was going to be called the Mistral race. And unfortunately, it didn't really go anywhere. These eight boats were built. Nothing happened. Everyone piled on the Whitbread and that's that's how history went. So these um, eight boats, Kevlar hull, very strong, massive aluminum frames, 12 tons on the bottom of them, like beautiful, powerful boats, which is what Weddell is. Um, they are like the ultimate expression of, of, of a maxi. And um, it's uh, it's She's a great boat to sail. I can only tell you that. It's a fantastic boat to sail. Um, he says, uh, Bruce continues, uh, when you mentioned the reinforcement in the hull for the keel, it made me think of drum in the fastnet race. Certainly an earlier generation boat, but seems at least carried on into the newer designs once they reinforce the keel support structure. Obviously, Simon Lavon's boat drum lost its uh, keel um, in the fastnet race and 
it has happened on other ones. I think Rambler 88 lost hers as well, didn't it? Was it Rambler 100? Ooh, I think it was Rambler 88. Um, the point always with these things is that it starts getting lighter and lighter and lighter because you're trying to concentrate the weight as low down in the boat. The lower down that weight is, the more um, stability the boat has once the wind starts to blow. As soon as she starts to heel over, we want all the weight focused as low down as possible and it keeps the boat powerful. Um, but to, to get the weight as low as possible, one of the symptoms of that is that you start trying to lighten everything that's above the keel bulb, the keel plates, the keel structure where it goes into the boat, the keel box, the grid that it's attached to, everything gets lighter and lighter and then things start to break. We saw it a lot with um, Open 60s where um, Alex Thompson's boat was a Mark Lombard design, I think, for the 2006 Velux race and he lost the, the keel. Now what happened on that one? It was the keel head snapped off, I think it was. So on a canting keel boat, you've got a big pin that goes through the keel about three feet from the top of the, the keel plate of the, um, the actual giant piece of metal or carbon fiber, which is the blade that sticks down underneath. And then separate to that in our minds, at least from an engineering point of view, we have the keel bulb, which is where all the weight is. So you have um, four and a half meters of draft on one of those uh, open 60s about three foot of oh, about one meter sorry of that is stuffed up inside the boat and that's where the actual activation of this canting keel comes from big hydraulic rams attached to the top of it about three foot of keel then a big fulcrum pin and then about another 17 foot of keel going down to the bulb so massive massive forces acting on that piece of carbon fiber and they can handle it and they do handle it and they have handled it long term and the engineering works out and everything else. But as Mark Lombard said, the um, end user, you know, when you're when you're building a boat specifically for someone, they have an input on what's going on and they can end up making decisions in the construction um, which are outside of uh, how it was designed to be built. So um, boats breaking their keels um, earlier on boats breaking their keel boxes it's been part of sailing for a long time seems like we're getting it sorted out now I no keel issues with the volvo 65s new eye mockers rarely rarely do one thing we have to always be aware of when we are looking at failures on boats at sea like big race boats there's there's the story that comes home and there's what happened and sometimes they're two separate things and you just logic has to lead you to that revelation if you've got something that you've done as a skipper on a say a solo boat at sea and you've pooched yourself because of it uh there's definitely ways of kind of like mediating slightly between um what happened and and how it's presented and uh that definitely has happened with particularly like rig breakages i think there's a lot of times where really that is um user error that there's the wrong backstays on the backstays are not swapped over quick enough the backstays are not on at all during a jibe and the mask comes down um, but with keels, yeah, certainly experience from the past, things like drum um, have demonstrated uh, just how much force is being redirected into the hull when you've got, like in the case of Weddell, 12,000 kilos. What's that, like 28,000 pounds in a bulb at the end of the keel? And the keel's, yeah, as I say, like 13, 14 foot long or something. Like it better be strong where it goes into the boat. Let's have a see what else he says. Uh, he says, I'd be uh, super interested to hear your opinions on reaching and running sails. Ooh, okay. We recently purchased the Harken Reflex top-down furler and we'll be fitting a sprit to the boat this winter. In the meantime, I've been talking with several sailmakers and we'll be getting essentially an ASIM 1.5 for about 60 to 150 apparent wind angle. Flying off the masthead, it'll probably be in the neighborhood of 900 square feet. 
It will definitely get flown more than the symmetrical spinnaker. The symmetrical spinnaker is great fun and super fast. Just takes a person or two who have more of an idea about the setup to hoist and drop. Ooh, ooh. Okay, so Bruce, I have kind of held off talking about sales for quite a long time on this podcast. Um, <laughs> people are always asking me, sales? What about sales? Okay, so let's not get into a giant description of how all sales work. Let's just talk about spinnakers and asymmetrics versus symmetrics and maybe decant some of these numbers that are in this email so we can all understand what we're talking about. So let's let's start off with something simple, simple here. 900 square foot. Um, it used to be that uh, uh, they said a, a, an individual, a sailor, a, a you know, person out on the water can handle 500 square foot of canvas. Now, that would be literally like number eight sail canvas, which is super heavy stuff. Like it's, well, I don't know what it's comparable to, like tarpaulin, like proper old tarpaulin, not plastic things that are called tarps. I mean, like tarpaulin, heavy, heavy, heavy. Um, so that would be an element of it. When it got wet, it was even heavier again. And you can imagine that the kicking and the whipping and the the, uh, the huge amount of energy, something like that's got when you're just hanging onto one corner of it and the rest of it, the wind's got hold of. So at 900 square feet, we are beyond theoretically what one person can handle, which immediately means that we're going to have to have some way of managing it. So um, what uh, Bruce has said here is that they've got the Harkin Reflex top-down furler. So uh <laughs> I'm just trying to work out like how much we're going to. So we all know furlers on the front of the boat. There are two sorts of furlers that we deal with primarily on the front of the boat. We have um, reefing, uh, reefing mechanisms and furling mechanisms. And I'm just trying to kick my, pick my words very carefully here. Uh, reefing mechanisms are single line furlers. Okay, so this word furler and reefing and all these words get like thrown into these conversations very like just like hundreds and thousands you know sprinkled on top um anything which rolls the sail up could be to say could be a furler right um something which can furl the sail up but can stop the furling process and then is strong enough to hold the torque of a fully powered up sail that's roller reefing it is a furler yes it is but it is roller reefing and that is somewhat different okay so if you've got a single line coming out of the big drum with a kind of metal cage around it it's a it's able to handle the forces of reefing on if it's correctly specced to the boat so you wind that line in a little bit and suddenly you've got less of a sail and the sail resets and you get the sheet on and now you've got a smaller sail we know of course that Sails that are going to be used in that fashion really kind of need to be designed to be on a roller furling setup. Oh, I've got to get my right words right. On a roller reefing setup, because otherwise you are rolling away the sail by rolling up the luff of it, which means you're rolling up. Think about what the sail looks like mm, from like top down, looking at the cord of the sail, the, the length from front to back. It looks like a wing. Once it's got air in it, once it's doing whatever it's doing, it looks like half a wing. The point of maximum depth is quite far forward on that wing, just like you'd expect if, like, you know, you, you drew an airplane wing. So the maximum core depth is normally in the front third of the sail. So if you roll up the sail to, like, put your first reef in, suddenly that midpoint of the sail, which has a three-dimensional shape, you're going to find it's very hollow. However tight your forestay is, however tight the halyard is on this sail, because you are now attempting to roll up the front of the sail and remove like the first third of the sail, you're going to find that the sail is a really nasty shape. So whenever we're working with furlers, reefing systems, 
um, whatever you want to call it, we must recognize that we are, um, wh whether we're dealing with something which is going to furl the sale or it's going to reef the sale. So spinnakers are always furled. You cannot reef a spinnaker. <laughs> That's, uh, you could check out, like if you're going to get a new crew on board and you shout, hey, reef the spinnaker, uh, then you'll find out if they know what they're talking about or not, of course. But um, so a furler is going to be something that rolls up the sail. Now, if you have got a sail which is quite flat cut, a spinnaker which is quite flat cut, like my code 5s, code 6s, they can be, and code zero, of course, they can be furled with a bottom up furler. So then I guess we have to talk about the difference in the furling mechanism. If you've got a roller reefing system, you have a foil, an aluminum extruded foil that runs down the forestay and the sail slots up into it. It's got a, the sails really strongly mechanically connected to the forestay and it's held in tension all the time by the, the halyard that's there. Great. You start to roll it up. No problem at all. The torque from the bottom where the where the drum is, that torque is transferred up the extruded aluminum foil, which is rotating around your forestay, and it just takes the front of the sail and just rolls it away. Easy, easy. Nice, neat fold from top to bottom. Plus, you're also probably dealing with very heavyweight fa fabric beyond 2.2 ounces uh, per square yard. And so it's easy to get that stuff to, to lay down flat and not flap around too much in the breeze. If you're dealing with a spinnaker, you're dealing with something which is flying at the front. So code zero, very easy to deal with on the front. Code five is also very easy to deal with on the front. And you can send the torque up from the bottom to the top of the sail. You're not using an aluminum extrusion like you would be doing on a roller furled jib. You're using something called an anti-torsional stay. An anti-torsional stay is normally made of something like Vectran or though maybe I might be Dyneema on smaller boats, and it's a, a very heavy piece of synthetic cordage, which is very compactly manufactured, very tightly woven. So there's hardly any loose at all between the warp and weft of the line, between the different parts of the, uh, the rope as it's brought together. And because there's almost no... Um, movement between the separate fibers it's able to transfer torque very nicely if what would be a comparable if you had like um little piece of um polyester rope or polypropylene polypropylene floating line which is on your horseshoe life boy and you twisted one end of it it'd be extraordinarily difficult to create uh, a similar amount of torque at the other end of a length of polypropylene line wouldn't it you put a light on the floor and start twisting one end you have to twist it a hell of a long way before the other end starts twisting but if you had a piece of wire rope and you twisted one end of it, it the other end would be twisting like one for one well you can't use wire rope up the front of a modern sail it's too heavy and all the rest of it so we have synthetic variants and that's where this Vectran or Dyneema anti-torsional stay so that's great if the sail is attached from the top to the bottom right down its luff as would be a code zero and would be a code five but if you're talking about a, f a flying sail, like um, we've got a symmetric sail here, which um, Bruce is talking about, then it's going to have a big shoulder on it and it's going to be separate from the stay. So you have to think of the sail set, nice asymmetric spinnaker, it's sheeted on, looking great. The stay is completely separate from it. It's just hanging out kind of near the front of the boat. Now at that point, if you started to furl the bottom of it, you would start to collect loads of the forward tack of the sail. You would then start to collect lots of, you know, kind of that third of the sail, lower third of the sail. Then you might start to get some like kind of the middle of the sail, but it's gonna be extraordinarily difficult for you to get the top of the sail to get involved in the process. 
So what we have is top-down furlers where the um, the torque from the furler at the bottom is transmitted to the top and it's the top uh, furler unit which normally just is a, a, a bit that whizzes around. This now is the part which is going to impart the uh, torque to the sail. So the head of the sail is attached to a unit uh, a furling unit which is attached to the stay. Once it starts to go round and round, it captures the head, it then drags the shoulder of the sail in, it then drags the forward edge of the sail in, and it starts to grab the belly and all the rest of it. And it can be a fantastic way of furling a flying sail, which would otherwise be impossible to, to furl. It just wouldn't work, right? What are your other options with spinnakers? Well, snuffers are a great option. Um, Grand Prix bags are another great option, or wooling it. Now, Obviously, there was a period back in the day on tall ships when you'd have something called rotten cotton, which was a 100% natural fiber and very, very lightweight, um, like a, a sizal might be used for it or a very light couple of bits of uh, manila. But it would be so light that it would just break open. When I think of Jifong, the tall ship I worked on, we had a triangular sail that went up above the upper yard and um, it was called the Rafi. And the Rafi was sent up in rotten cotton. And then when it gets up there, it kind of looks a bit like a um, uh, Mercedes symbol. And then you pull sharply on the sheets, all the rotten cotton breaks, ta -da, and you've got yourself a sail, right? This is old school technology. Spinnakers come along, obviously lots of chin scratching and probably bum scratching and like how are we going to make this thing go back inside the forepeak and options would have been you manhole it down which is like a, a kiwi drop or something when you're doing racing you just have lots of people and you pull or they'd be bringing it down between the the boom and the the the, the mainsail which is if i'm doing anything with sail training we always do a letterbox drop that brings the sail down between in that nice gap between the bottom of the mainsail and the top of the boom just completely depowers the spinnaker just blow off the guy blow off the halyard whatever it is you need to whatever's your particular configuration and then choof, comes in through the boom happy days um and then it's uh yes yeah, snuffer which would be that big long sock of material with the the pulley inside it and the kind of hard aperture mouth that um you pull it, it goes up to the top, it stays out of the way at the top of the sail while you're doing what you're doing with the sail. And then when you want to get rid of the sail, you pull on the ropes, which are still down on the deck. Of course, the snuffer bucket comes down, snuffs the air out the sail, the big soccer material comes down and the sail completely disappears. People don't like snuffers because it puts a lot of, uh, well, not a lot, it puts some windage and some weight aloft, although it's almost nothing. If you are in the habit of um, pulling your snuffer down with a winch in the cockpit, it's a very, very reliable system. And you just put a, a ratcheting block in as a turning block so that it doesn't, uh, doesn't want to slip back up. It doesn't want to reinflate the spinnaker if, you, if it does slip on the winch in the cockpit or it gets taken off the winch. But snuffers are very good. Um, Grand Prix bags is like a giant bag made out of um, sail material or some kind of ripstop material. Um, which has a big zip that goes from the top to the bottom. It's Velcroed onto the top of the kite. The kite is then, you run the tapes on the kite, stuff it into the bag, and the bag gets to um, a, a set point from the designer, which um, uh, as you get to like, okay, we're getting to the bottom of the spinnaker here now, and we need to have like this Mercedes symbol. We need to have like two legs on the bottom of this thing. The bottom of the bag is like a, a nappy for a child, essentially. There's a bit that flaps from up from behind and, and Velcro's on the front of the bag, leaving two apertures that the legs of the spinnaker can stick out through. And you can either put a little bit of 
cotton down there or you can have some other mechanism that you use on deck i've seen people use little velcro things that they take off or ropes that they release or just let it fly whatever it is but the majority of the spinnaker like four-fifths of the spinnaker is inside this big bag that has this big zip that runs up the front of it and the whole thing is velcroed to the top of the spinnaker when you want to release it you have a little rope that pulls on that um that diaper that front edge diaper of the uh of the bottom of the grand prix bag and when you pull on it um the zip that you closed to get the spinnaker inside the bag that zip runs right off the end of its track so there is no zipper but there is a closed zip but now once you remove that diaper which was velcro holding those uh, two sides of the zip together suddenly the sail starts to blow the zip open and if you get it just right um, it should end up that this whole bag uh, separates the sail inflates the thing is attached by velcro at the top you give it a sharp jerk and it comes off the velcro and then it's in the water and you just recover it so grand prix bags are a great way of getting big kites aloft with a small four deck team the downsides can be uh, they don't come down from the top when you, when you jerk on them or the, the, the snap shackle that's holding the uh, top of the, the, the kite catches the catches the, uh, the the top of the bag and then you cannot get the thing out of the sky. You got this like massive pennant flying out behind the boat or that you drop them in the water and you lose them or a multitude of other things. So spinnakers and managing spinnakers is something we've been doing for quite a while now. What uh, Bruce is talking about here is a the top-down furling mechanism is quite new. It's probably 10 years, maybe a little bit more, 12 years. But um, the downsides can be that they still don't furl properly. And that's just the thing. You have to find an angle where it's going to work for you. And I'm sure Bruce and his, uh, his crew will get off onto the water and start to work that out. Um, it, it, you've got to work with the sheet tension. You've got to work with the halyard, ten oh, halyard tension. No, not so much on that one. You've got to get the tension right for the way that the sail is attached to the furling system. It's not something dynamic as you're, as you're hoisting and lowering it. you just got to get the, the setup where the tack and the head meet it. You've got to get that right. But um, working with sheet tension, working with how deep you go off the wind, working with um, where your mainsail position is can all affect the way that it, um, it rolls up. Because one of the things we all know with um, spinnakers is that if you get them too far behind the mainsail, they'll start to do that crazy like um, uh, wine glass dance, right? They just, they get in behind the turbulence there and then they're a mess. And if you're trying to furl it up at the same time, you can have a real problem. So they're definitely working with what's the cutting edge of, um, cutting edge of furling technology at the moment. Uh, I think the thing which we would also say, oh, and the other thing we should say on that, that this is, when you're dealing with this kind of furler, it's not a reefing system. It's not a single line reefing system. The other type of system which exists out there, of course, is a continuous furling system where the wheel at the bottom in the drum that does the furling, the bit that the rope interacts with to turn the anti-torsional stay around, um, it's, it's a wheel that um, just goes round and round and round forever. And it's got a continuous loop of rope that's been spliced together going around it. So you can just keep going as far, as far, as far as you can. That should be your first identifier for the idea that, hmm, this might be <laughs> a variable amount of um, furling is required to get sails in. How many times have I furled a sail half up in a solo situation and then had to do some other job and I... You know, one minute later, 30 seconds later, 10 seconds later, turn around and the flipping sail has unwound itself. So if you are dealing with continuous furling lines, um, I remember Derek Hatfield, when I sailed with him, he swore by the fact that there should be uh, clutches on both sides of the furling line. He absolutely, because if any slack gets into it, it then the rope can slide off the back of the furling wheel inside the, the, the furling system. Um, and we were just doing this actually uh 
oh, you know what? Hey, wow, I've actually got something I can, <laughs> yeah, I, this is perfect. So over on Patreon in about a week's time, and this is going out mid-October in 2021, there will be a new video up there. It's about an hour long, and it's all about dealing with Rollerfold sales. Now, we are putting up a Rollerfold Stasol, which has an anti-torsional stay. It's a little bit different, but it's off down the path. If you haven't done much stuff with continuous furlers or, you know, the idea of furling headsaws beyond just the most basic system, have a look at that one. That's uh, that's on Patreon. So what happens on Patreon is it's 20 bucks a month and we're sending out uh, one hour videos per month at the moment. We're hoping to increase that to one every two weeks, but there's a lot of editing. But um, one hour seamanship videos, real detailed, granular stuff. And yes, the next one coming is all about furling headsaws. So almost, um, almost part of this. So um, let's have a see what else uh, Bruce says here. He says, uh, well, let's look at this from a little bit higher above. So I don't know which boat this is going on to, um, Bruce. Uh, if you've mentioned which boat it is in previous emails, sorry, I've already uh, I've already forgotten that detail. <laughs> but, um, uh, oh, hang on. Oh, I've got something here. He says further up the email, he says, when the previous owners of our boat modified the keel, they did a similar strengthening grid structure in the hull. Aha, probably the strongest 30 foot fiberglass hull I think I've ever come across for its generation. Perfect. All right. So Bruce is putting an asymmetric spinnaker onto a 30 foot fiberglass hull. So here's what I'd say. Um, if you're going to design a boat from like absolute brass tacks, like start from the bottom, you'd be kind of scratching your head and you'd be trying to work out first, like, mm, what kind of, what kind of boat do I want? Is it, you know, is it going to have two masts? Is it going to have shallow keel, deep keel? Is it going to be a race boat? Is it going to plane? Is it displacement? Is it, you'd be doing all those things, right? And obviously the manufacturers and the designers of the boat that this is, I don't know what it is, but it's 30 foot and fiberglass. They did that. And when they got to the end of that process and they were putting the mast on, they were putting the sails on, all that stuff, then they thought, well, what's the best way to drive this hull with the performance potential that it has? And at some point, they came up with the idea or through some process, they came up with the idea of having a symmetric spinnaker. So again, we'll always try and talk also to those people who are very new to sailing. So symmetric versus an asymmetric spinnaker. All that means is that you can... Um, Cut the spinnaker in half from top to bottom. And if both halves are the same, it's symmetrical. And if the two halves are different, it's asymmetrical. Super simple. Asymmetrical sails we could look at as being like a hybrid between normal head sails, like a jib or a Yankee, and some kind of spinnaker. They have a definite tack that goes forward and is always forward. They have a definite clue, which is aft and always aft. The head, the, the, the parts of the sail are proportioned closer to something you'd expect on a jib rather than a spinnaker traditionally, which was symmetrical. Okay, what's the pros and cons of these two things? Well, certainly um, symmetrical spinnakers are older. They're more standardized kind of known technology. A lot of boats come with all of the gear to set them up. Um, and they do have a very interesting, very positive performance um, attribute, which is very relevant to this. Symmetrical spinnakers can be pulled out, as we all know, so that they can go much deeper. But if you're new to sailing, the boom's gonna go out on one side. As you go downwind, you're gonna have the big mainsail and the boom is essentially holding the mainsail out. If you didn't have the boom in play, then there'd just be a straight line between the sheet and whatever sail shape has been created by your downwind angle, which would probably be, um, if you're looking at the silhouette of the main, it'd probably be a lot smaller. It'd be a big, deep, nasty curve when i used to sail drascom dabbers and long boats and all those kind of things and gigs and 
they they have loose footed manes and they're pretty tricky to go downwind with because it's not very big silhouette to catch the wind. So let's look at the headsail. If we just had a jib, the jib would be behind the mainsail and it'd be kind of covered. You know, the wind wouldn't be able to see the jib because the mainsail would be covering it. So we want to get a sail to go on the other side. We want to get like the best possible downwind sail from history would be like a big square sail where you've got uh, a, a yard going across the boat, which pushes out the sail on the leeward side and pushes out the sail on the windward side. Well, the boom is pushing out the sail on the on the leeward side and the spinnaker pole is pushing out this other sail. The spinnaker is being pushed out to windward on the windward side. The boom's away to port, the spinnaker's away to starboard or vice versa. The, the tack of the spinnaker is whichever part of the spinnaker is attached to that spinnaker pole. The spinnaker pole's got its own rigging, something to hold it up and something to hold it forward and something to hold it back. And the sail's got its own rigging, which accommodates what the spinnaker pole requires. So there's a lot of complication in there. There's a lot of kind of like messing around. That's what Bruce says, I'm kind of sick of that. But the benefit it has is that the whole form of a 30 foot boat going downwind it may not be able to increase its performance by taking off the asymmetric spinnaker. You may increase the safety on the foredeck because it's furled. You may increase the capacity of the crew to get the sail up and down, which increases your performance because you, you can do it faster. But in terms of out and out performance on a 30 foot boat, which can't do much more than uh, 8.13 knots for a 40 footer is the maximum hull speed and displacement mode. If you, if you're planing, if you're flying and it's light, then you might be able to get it up to right on top of the water. But I don't think at 30 foot, that's necessarily what you're doing every time. And so what you may find is that your symmetrical kite has actually got more projection to windward and has more silhouette available to, to give you power going downwind. It may be that the best way of getting from the top mark in the race to the bottom mark of the race in this boat or to get from your location to a friendly harbor or out of out of the storm or whatever it is might be to go dead downwind and that's something that i see quite a lot when it comes to people modifying and adapting um older boats i've got a lot of love for older boats don't get me wrong but it's what can it do and what can't it do so um the maxi grand mistral that we've got here now um She's got quite a flat hull and she can she can plane. There's no there's no doubt she can plane. Over about 13 knots, she'll plane. Um, the symmetrical spinnaker can make her plane, and an asymmetrical spinnaker can make her plane. The difference with the way that a symmetrical spinnaker and an asymmetrical spinnaker get to the bottom mark and from, from windward position to a leeward position is that a windward boat goes in an almost straight path. It can have its uh, boom way out on one side, spinnaker pole way out on the other side, and you could be rocking some like 170 degree uh, true wind angle, right? You could be rocking 180 degrees true wind angle, though watch out, of course. But um, that's it. It's going to go there like as fast as that'll take it. For an asymmetrical spinnaker and therefore an asymmetrical boat to get to the bottom mark quickly, it's not going to be able to go directly in front of the wind or anywhere close to that because the asymmetrical spinnaker is set behind the mainsail. So the only way that that's going to work is if the boat is going at such a speed that despite the fact that you're going downwind, your true wind angle is like 
more than 150, the speed of the boat starts to modify the apparent wind. So as we've talked about before, if you are out on the water on a completely flat, calm day, nothing going on, you're in a little motorboat and you start doing 10 knots forwards, you will feel 10 knots of wind on your face. It doesn't matter if you go north, south, east or west, there's no wind that day. So you will always feel 10 knots on your face and that wind is being created by the boat, by its engine pushing through the water. Conversely, if you are out in a little rowing boat, not moving, absolutely still sitting on the ocean, and there was 10 knots of wind blowing, it would only ever blow from one direction. You can't really, you can't change unless it changes. So we know then we have two elements. We have the ground wind and we have the boat wind. And by the way, if anybody knows the proper name for, the, for what it's called, like the wind that the boat makes, please tell me. I, I still don't know after 20 odd years. So that we've got the boat wind though, the wind that the boat makes as it moves through the air. And we've got the wind that's blowing over the water at that time, the ground wind. Now, as the boat starts to move on a windy day, the wind that we feel on the boat, the apparent wind, is some kind of combination of the ground wind and the boat wind. If the boat's going very, very slowly and there's a lot of wind blowing, then your apparent wind and your true wind and your ground wind are going to be very, very similar angles and very, very similar strength. If you've got a light, fast boat that is heading off downwind and it's able to plane like some 25 foot magic or you know some kind of sport surfing boat like a 49er, you could be going 170 degrees uh, off the wind, 170 degree true wind angle and have an apparent wind angle of 90 degrees because the boat is creating so much wind as it zooms along relative to the amount of ground wind that the modification of those two forces means that the apparent wind feels a lot further forward because it's more, a greater component of it is the wind that the boat is generating itself over its bow. Um, and it's gonna be a lot faster because you've got this, this additive effect of the wind that was blowing over the, the surface of the water plus some element of the velocity of the boat going forward. So apparent wind, true wind and boat wind are that kind of like trifecta of things that skilled sailors are always trying to balance up. So if you've got a boat that's 30 foot that's had a lot of modification done to it and it's been stiffened and it's tough and it's heavy and everything else, the quickest way for that boat to get from the upwind position to the downwind position may yet be for it to have a spinnaker which is symmetrical, is pulled out to windward and it goes almost straight downwind. If you put an asymmetrical spinnaker on it, you may find that you have to take up an angle which is uh, not as low as you could have gone with the symmetrical spinnaker. So now you're going downwind at like 150 degrees and that means that your distance to your downwind position has just increased. If you go from the upwind mark to the downwind mark, and we call that a unit of one, if you go downwind and have to put a right angle turn in to get down there like you're doing it, it's gonna be 140% longer. Now, if you can go a little bit um, uh, better angle than having to do 90 degree tacks, then you can increase that, of course. And that's where asymmetric spinnakers and asymmetric sport boats work. They are going at a very deep angle downwind, down the true wind, but they are getting there using apparent wind, which they feel on their beam. They're symmetrical kites. And I think actually, if I have a quick look back at uh, what uh, Bruce has written here, I've got one of those iPads that does face ID. So when I try and click it on, I have to pick it up and peer into it like it's some, like some kind of idiot um, before it'll let me see the things I wanna see. So he says, um, 
be getting an asymmetric 1.5 asymmetric 1.5 is just 1.5 ounce of material per square yard you could have 0 0.5 1 1.5 1.752 2.2 getting heavier and heavier as you get into heavier kites so we've got an 1.5 asymmetric kite with a Harkin Reflex top-down furler. Now we all know what that is. It's on a 30-foot fiberglass hull, which has had a similar grid strengthening grid structure put into it as our Maxi. It's 900 square feet, which is big enough, but it's um, it's for angles between 60 and 150 apparent wind angle. So what's interesting there is that that's going to have to be quite the crossover sail to go 150 apparent wind angle and 60. I guess you could vary it with... Uh, Halliard tension or something kind of change the shape. See, a reaching sail is going to have um, a different shape than a downwind sail. If you've got a downwind kite, you want to get the, um, and you're, you're heading downwind with it, you want to be in a situation where you are, um, your sheet leads for your spinnaker are quite far forward. Make that spinnaker inflate and have big, broad shoulders at the top of it. If you're going to be reaching with the sail, and 60 apparent wind angle really is reaching, you're going to need your leads much further back. And instead of trying to strap the sail down and open the top of it, uh, get a big round shoulder in it, then what you're doing when you're reaching is you're trying to have your leads as far back as possible. You're trying to strap the bottom of the uh, spinnaker as flat as possible. You're trying to get the front edge of it pretty um, pretty tight if you can. You're going to have quite a big curve on the leech of the sail, which is going to allow a nice flow through from the front to the back of the sail. I guess the thing to say here is that Modern sail design has uh, improved so much that when they went out on the 93 Whitbread race, they went with an inventory of 17 sails. There's a lot of sails, a lot, a lot of sails. The reason why there's such a big difference between sail manufacture in the early 90s and sail manufacture at the end of the 90s is because computer technology by about 1995, 1996 had got to a point that we actually understood the flow of wind over sails, that we had not understood this before that. And suddenly intelligent and uh, resourceful sail designers could suddenly start to look at, okay, what is it you need? And they could work out a sail that, yeah, if you put the lead here, this part of the sail will be tension, but then when you put the lead there, that part will be... They had crossover sales that could do all sorts of jobs which previously had been done only by uh, one individual sale. So that's probably what we're looking at here a little bit is that we've got a crossover sale which is able to do 60 apparent wind angle to 150 apparent wind angle and of course that would be probably reaching in light airs and then running in heavier airs. So yeah, it will go across the breeze as long as you go light and then it will go downwind and much heavier breeze. So Without, well, it's a pretty big tangent. <laughs> it's a half hour tangent. But the point is not really a tangent. It's about spinnakers and stuff, isn't it? The point to Bruce and his crew is this. Make sure whatever you're doing for the boat, um, if you are looking for performance increase, be sure that it can provide that performance increase that that kind of boat can re can react well to that kind of performance increase. Make sure you're not sort of uh, get that bloody old symmetrical spinnaker out of here and then discover oh man there's so many problems on the other side of that that you almost rather go back to the symmetrical i get this all the time with the um with the boats we've got there was a podcast i made which never got released which was me sitting on the dock um looking at longabarda and then talking at length about the way that the mast had been modified to my design when i was doing uh, consultancy with that boat years before um and how I really love the design of uh, the, the backstays, which I've come up with, which we use on all our boats, which is um, 
is made very, very simple by having a pin-headed mane, like a normal triangular-topped Bermudan mane. Um, the way the backstays work, everything can flip-flop backs and forwards. We've got these big running backstays, but it's fine. The mane's all compact. And then as soon as I want to put a flat-top mane on there for fashion, all the plans go out the window. It's nowhere near as good as it was going to be. My whole system falls apart. And I do wonder sometimes people, oh, we should get a sprit. Now, why do you need a bow sprit? I guess that's another thing. Why do we need a bow sprit? Because we're trying to get the spinnaker when it's in very downwind positions, like we're trying to project the spinnaker away from the mainsail. You know, um, my boat here, uh, Falcon, the Open 60, which uh, we're going to be using for the West about, still going to happen. Just got a few things we got to do first. Um, it has a very short bowsprit. It has a bowsprit that's only one meter long. And that's because that boat was designed primarily for going upwind. It's the only iMocker 60 that's ever been designed for upwind. It has a one meter overhang on the main boom. And because iMocker 60s are only allowed two meters of overhang in total, that meant that the bowsprit had to be a meter. And they wanted that big main because it's for going upwind. You want as much leech as possible. So that the mainsail on that boat is enormous. It's like 1,600 square feet or something. So... Um, that bowsprit, though, I'm not going to be racing under iMocker rules. So that bowsprit is going to be elongated. So we get probably a, a two-meter bowsprit. And that means that then she'll, the lower edges of those um, kites will have more projection. So if I am attempting to go downwind, the sail is physically held further away from the turbulence of the mainsail. That's the reason for the sprit. Plus, they look cool. Plus, they allow you to, to insert holes into the uh, boats that are around you uh, and uh, allow you to take big chunks off the dock. They're otherwise known as prodders, and there's a good reason for that. But um, the spinnaker sprit and the top-down furler and the asymmetrics, man alive, does it look cool. It looks way cooler than symmetrical kites and stuff, you know. So there's a reason that's fashion, there's a reason that's performance, and there's a reason that's safety and convenience. I guess if you're making that move, just understand which one it is. It's going to be so much easier to get it in the air. Once you've got your furling mechanism and your your, your furling procedure worked out, it's going to be so much safer to drop it, so much easier. Um, but if you're doing it purely for performance, I would say keep the all the gear for the asymmetric kite on the boat. And if you have a if you're racing it or if you have a particular destination which is dead downwind, I'd just let the uh, asymmetrical spinnaker rest and uh, get back on with the um, Get back on with the symmetric kites. They uh, they still have their benefits. All right, I have looked into the iPad. It's turned itself back on. What else does he say? Um, he says, oh, I'll finish up his thing. He says, uh, it's turned into more of a task than simply mounting a sprit, uh, hoisting the furler and getting sails. The interesting part has been determining the loads on the deck-mounted bow ring for the sprit. Yeah, good point. We could talk about that. The boat is a 1979 solid fiberglass hull, and they built them solid for sure. Yes, but the lands that are imposed on a deck, or the loads rather, that are imposed on a deck-mounted sprit are pretty high. There's been a lot of research lately into fiberglass deck strength, torque, and sheet loads on the sprit, backing plate sizes, materials, etc. I am trying to avoid ripping the foreneck off my boat if I get caught in a gust higher than planned. The loads shoot up phenomenally quick with that much sail area. All that being said, it would be interesting to hear what your plans are for replacing the Hankton jib and sail plan for Weddell. Love hearing about it and know you have lots of work ahead of you. Good luck and take care, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. Um, so to speak to that last paragraph. Okay, so as we thought, 1979, quite solid boat. Um, in terms of loads that go onto things on the deck, I'll tell you about a story where we messed up with Challenger. We were out doing the uh, Antigua Sailing Week in 2016. Oh, I wish I could remember the group there on board now. Great guys from Austria. 
oh, man alive. Anyway, they were competitive. They were going for it, right? So what we've done on Challenger, which is a Whitbread 60, obviously we need to be able to control the position of the jib cars when we're going up and down wind. So the original system had been that there was a rope that led forward. Uh, I use the word rope. People say, no, there's only, there's only two ropes on a boat. There's, what is it? There's the bell rope and the someone else rope. I can't remember, bell rope and, I don't know yeah, look into that. There's loads of ropes. If you're talking about commercial ships, there's like 15 or 17 different things which are called a rope on a ship. So it's made of rope. Sometimes I say rope. Sue me. So we got this rope. <laughs> I'm just going to say it to piss people off. We got this piece of rope. Um, and it's attached to the, the side deck car for the, the turning car for the jib. So it runs forward. It goes around a turning point and it comes back down the deck and it goes into a jammer. The purpose of this line is to move the car forwards and then loads on the sheet will pop it backwards as we know there is another line on the same side which is set into a little kind of um, gun take or whip system like little uh, rigging system that adjusts the height of the car if you it, line comes out the system it goes forward goes around a turning point comes back down the side deck and now when we adjust the height of the car we have a little jammer we can lock it off we've got uh Two, low, two, two, two lines on the side deck to starboard and two lines on the star deck to port, okay? So you've got four lines that are controlling the jib or the jib turning cars. A better way of doing it is to have a line that runs up the side deck, uh, splits into two and then goes into both jib cars and adjusts the fore and aft position. And then another line, second line, that goes up to the fore deck, goes around a turning point, splits into two, and then adjusts the height of the car. Now we only have two lines to deal with, and the benefit is that when we set the car that's being used on, say, starboard tack, when we tack over, the cars on the other side are already set to the correct position, right? Nice and easy, we can all understand that. There was one minor difficulty, which is that Challenger has been modified previously to have roller reefing headsail, okay? And I'm saying that very carefully. Roller reefing, not roller furling, roller reefing headsail. So that means that the original, um, uh, what's that called? Like ring on the deck where the tack of the jibs attach, uh, it was like available. It was kind of like um, made of, I don't know, what's that? Like three eighths or maybe half inch stainless uh, bar thing that went across. You could clip the tacks of these big jibs on. But it had it no longer had a use because now we've got roller furling, right? So it's just sitting there on the deck. And um, we had decided that this would be a perfect place to put these new blocks for these two lines that we're going to operate, jib car up and down, jib car fore and aft. So it's got a lot of load on it when a Whitbread 60 is close hauled, bouncing up wind to, in, in the Caribbean and probably 20, 25 knots of, of, of true wind. Um, and then all the loads, we're doing like 11 knots upwind in big seas, right? So I don't really think much of it. This thing's giant. It's big stainless steel thing on the foredeck of the boat. Like what, what, what are you worried about? Lash two blocks onto it, put the lines through it, poof, off to the pub, you know? Yeah, well, so we're, uh, we've been around in the boat for about a year and we're going to um, going up to the windward mark in this Antigua, um, Antigua race week. And uh, I hear this noise going i was like oh blimey like the jibs ripping or maybe got too much you know sheet load on the jibs ripping out or the mainsails come look at the sails like nothing's no nothing's doing nothing's there like where's this noise coming from so i said to the guy that's at the mast who's like our foredeck man um one of the the crew that's on there from austria i said check the foredeck to see if anything's ripping or tearing 
And uh, it's noisy and bouncy, as you can imagine, a bit difficult to move around. We're beating to windward in a, in a Whitbread 60. He shouts back at me. He said, no, no, the sail's fine, but the hatch where you put the anchor, it's open. <laughs> and I was like, we don't have an anchor hatch. So I went forward and discovered that this little, um, this little point, which I had decided was so very strong for doing this uh, ma manipulation of the rigging, it had just torn itself out the deck. Now the deck is made of Kevlar, so it had torn itself out the deck and then taken a lot of the deck with it. So there's a hole in the front of the boat that was probably, I tell you no lie, like 16 inches long, which if you're in metric is like big enough, you know, and maybe eight inches wide, which is again, big enough in metric, right? So it was, uh, it's like, it's quite large hole. Now, luckily we had all the materials we were able to repair that night and blah, blah, blah. But I learned very quickly uh, well, I got reminded very quickly of sheet loads, checking backing plates, checking yeah the strength of the deck, all that kind of stuff. So Bruce is on exactly the right uh, pattern here with what he's trying to, still trying to get into this flipping iPad. I'm going to have to do, so, I just have to keep like, it just wants to be touched constantly and manipulated. Otherwise it switches off and goes dark and I'm in, I'm in the dark. Pull the mic back in here. So he says, um, yeah, deck mounted um, bow ring for the sprit. When you're dealing with that part of the boat up there, you know, how much strength was in there originally, there was a lot of um, tensile loads, which were the force stayers intended to uh, generate. And so that area of the boat is um, is very strong for that kind of load. But what loads are the bowsprit, what, what loads is a bowsprit imparting to the boat? If we think of it as something that's laid on deck, which, you know, I've got... Um, uh, bow sprits on all these boats and three different designs, but the one on Challenger is pretty, uh, pretty John Deere. It's pretty, uh, pretty heavy duty and it's made of aluminum, um, tubes. Um, when they're on the deck, the sail is trying to pull the outboard end of the bow sprit up. And then there's a type one, uh, lever being activated. If you think of like a wheelbarrow, it's, uh, it's got a fulcrum right at one end. And then when you pick up the wheelbarrow, that's, you're able to lessen the load, but there is still, you know, a lot of force being applied downwards onto the, the wheel. The load is, less of the load is in your hands and more of the load is on the wheel, right? If you think of a bowsprit, you've got what's called a crantz band or technically, uh, historically, it was called a crantz band, which is the band that goes around the bowsprit. It's there and the, um, the bowsprit is... Um, being lifted up at its outboard end it's trying to lift its crantz band up as though it's the load in a wheelbarrow and it's trying to bear down on the deck at a fulcrum point which is inside the crantz band if the crantz band is working then the inboard end of the bowsprit is being projected harshly down onto the deck and if the crantz band is not working then you or not able to to do the job then the crantz band is pulled out of the deck okay is that really a tight one lever it's kind of a type one lever, isn't it? Maybe I might be changing my plan there. Maybe it's a type two lever, like a seesaw, but it's kind of upside down. Maybe I'm changing my mind to that. Well, well that's, that's how debate starts, right? Is it a type one or a type two lever? Most bowsprits now are built into the boats. This is all structural and it's inside the boat. Although it's worth noting that if you get something like, um, I remember driving a J122 and uh, you know, it has a retractable bowsprit, but the housing that it goes into, that housing is long and, and, and really distributes the load a long way under the deck. If it's under the deck so you can't see it. If you're going to have an on-deck bowsprit and do the same trick, then the bowsprit inboard end would go like almost up to the mast. You can't really do that. It's not going to look very good, is it? So then you end up having to, can you... 
can you separate it into two bits so that it lands on either side of the bow and it's got nice mounting points there. Um, the bit which is very important is that the uh, where it's attached to the, the loads are coming down from the spinnaker going through the end of the bowsprit and then that needs to be transferred down onto some part of the forefoot of the boat. The What's going on with the bowsprit is almost exactly the same as what's going on with the um, the mast. You know, the, the bowsprit is acting as a spreader to, to push this piece of rigging away from and, and increase the angle. Uh, you've got a piece of rigging which is secured to the forefoot of the boat, probably just above the waterline somewhere, or and then goes up to the end of the bowsprit. And when the sail starts to pull on the end of the bowsprit, it's not just pulling on the strength of the bowsprit. That would be disastrous. The loads on the deck and the loads on the cranspan would be immense. That's almost impossible to hold. But it goes down through that um, that bob stay, which comes out the bottom of the uh, uh, bowsprit and heads down to that position just above the the waterline on the boat, and it trans the load so that changes the nature of the gig a lot because if you think about it then your spreader is not subject to up and down forces it's subject to compressive forces so that changes then what's going on with your bowsprit if your bowsprit is purely being held in place by a crans band and by the deck huge loads if you could transfer the load down to some stronger point lower down in the boat then you've got a good chance of um, of of the load being um, spread about and 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 handled by the end of the the end of the underwater sections of the boat i guess you know you think of a boat comes up out of a wave and then crashes down that forefoot that area which impacts the waves is a very strong area of the boat there's probably good places in there that you can attach your um, bob stay and and have success in transferring loads that should mean that if it's set up correctly you're going to have compressive forces on your bowsprit and not have any lifting or dipping forces on your bowsprit. What we tend to do with the race boats is we'll go out and stand on the end of the bowsprit and then somebody else is really reefing on the on the lashing which is holding the um, bobstay and that like snubs the bowsprit down a bit and you'll see with a lot of modern race boats the bowsprit's like it's like a drop snoot it's it, it's kind of slightly lowered but then what happens when the big loads go on them you see this often on volvo 70s and big modern maxis um the as the bows as the bob stay stretches slightly and the compressive loads start to get to their designed parameters the the bowsprit levels off and then you've got you know full distribution of forces so my goodness me, I'm talking a lot about this one email. There are others, you know, but um, yeah, I hope something in there is useful to you and your team, uh, Bruce. And certainly when it comes to loads on the um, on the bowsprit, yeah, look out. It's a very easy thing to punch your um, deck-mounted uh, sprit through the through the foredeck of the boat. So, whew, my goodness me, let's have a seat. We have got some other, uh, other people here. I've got, let me see. Mm-mm-mm. I've got Nicholas Surna. Have I got that right, Nicholas? Whenever people have got little um, dots above letters in their names or little accents, my my little English linguistic um, numbskull, little little part of my brain that deals with language, just basically faints. I I, I can't deal with anything which is uh, <laughs> which is anything other than standard. So um, he says, uh, let's have a see. He's uh, uh, from southern Germany and uh, is thirty eight. He's an electrical engineer 
and uh, in his non-sailing life. Um, he's going to be joining us for a transat. Uh, we, because of 2020, see a lot of people booked on for things, either the Quebec San Marlo or the Marconi or any other number of events. And um, if that's you, if you have uh, booked with us in the past and you haven't heard anything for a little while, just drop me a line and just make sure we're now going through all of the... Um, all of the administration, all of the logistics, all of the planning for both 2020, 2021, 2022, and just making sure there are no administrative um, gaffes in there that we've we've missed anybody or anything else. We have a lovely new admin system, all automated, all um, uh, much better at holding on to the details than what we were doing previously. But um, many people like, um, like Nicholas here, they were going to go and do something. He was going to do the... Um, the Quebec San Marlo, which unfortunately was cancelled. So now he's looking to do something different. Um, he says he was never really interested in uh, big boat sailing. He's uh, a skiff sailor and a catamaran sailor. Um, it took him a couple of years uh, before he set foot on a cruising yacht. And he, when he did so, it was more out of interest and excitement. And he realized there's a lot to learn. There is. You know, I think that's one thing I'm trying to promote with this podcast is that, you know, I think it's even in the write-up for it. Like, if you're fishing or sailing or on a tall ship or a, you know, a, a brand new skiff or a maxi, it, it's all the same thing. Like, it, I, I worry sometimes, I'm not sure if it's the racers are trying to separate themselves from the cruisers or the cruisers are trying to separate themselves from the racers. Like, from my point of view, doing commercial stuff and doing the Navy, like, they're all fenders of equal quality you know it's they're, they're useful to stop big ships from hitting the dock that's what you used to joke about in the navy clearly it's not true just allegedly true but um the the, the separation hurts the sport the separation hurts the pursuit i think it's uh it, you know a racer can appreciate the way a cruiser set up their boat for that task a racer can appreciate that um it's intended to be comfortable and it's intended to create a, you know, a relaxed atmosphere to enjoy time with friends. Equally, I would hope that a cruiser can recognize like, wow, you guys are super efficient at getting from A to B. Like, what's the maths? What's the calculus? How does this work? You know, how can I improve the upwind performance of my boat? It's all the same. If we start like getting weirdly tribal and weirdly kind of separated, then it'll you know, sort of starts to fall apart. I guess I'm a little bit sensitive to this at the moment. I was, um, we had a wonderful, wonderful experience a couple of uh, weeks ago. We had an opportunity which was uh, presented to me through one of my original investors, Eric Guion. He sails all the time with a disabled sailing organization out of Quebec here in Canada. And um, one of the guys that he sails with regularly, another guy called Eric, Eric Poirier. Hello, Eric, if you're listening. Um, he was uh, very, very keen to just get an opportunity, if possible, to to get out on one of our boats and to experience what it's like to be on a on a maxi or something. Actually, you know what? I'm going to downgrade that because Eric was very humble and he was very. Um, he just wasn't sure like what was possible and what wasn't. So he was actually just keen to get like on the deck. Is it possible to get the wheelchair on there? Eric has not got the use of either of his legs. So he's doing all this sailing. He's sailing the little 2.4s. He's sailing the Martin 16s, which are both boats set up for disabled sailors. Unbelievable things these people are doing with these boats. Unbelievable. But um, Eric Guillaume, my uh, my investor, said like, hey, is there is there like a way we can you know, we can do this like properly. I'm like, watch this. So with a band of very, very wonderful crew who came together here on a, a non-commercial activity here in Nova Scotia, all looking to do whatever they could to make this happen. Um, 
Eric, <laughs> Eric's a legend, firstly. If you've ever seen videos of me doing stuff down here, like how you get on and off these boats, we had organized all of this um, mechanism of him transferring to the dock here at the Lunenburg Yacht Club and then getting into an appropriately set up um, um, motorboat, which would then be able to bring him over to our dock and then transfer onto our dock. And then we had the maxi with its bum up against the dock out on a mooring, but it's bum up against the dock. No, no, not Eric. <laughs> no, no. He just... Um, gets his wheelchair and goes down. How many steps is it down? Jeepers, it must be like 25 or 30 steps. And it's not like they're concrete. They're made of bits of wood and they're made of old shale. And we were just like showing him like, there's a nice view of the boat. He's like, okay. And just starts backing his way down there in his wheelchair. Unbelievable. So gets himself down on the dock. Wicked. Takes a little bit of a, a hand as we get up the passerelle, get him on the boat. And then we unpacked the, <laughs> the sails and then we disconnected from the dock and we went sailing for like three or four hours. And uh, Eric had a great time. Um, everybody on board had a great time. His smile lit up everybody else and just reminds us all how awesome it is to be able to get out on the water and just be pushed around by the, it's the simplest thing. I still think I do that. Like I just go out on the bow and just put my hand on a headsail and go, how is this happening? <laughs> How is this happening? Like, yeah, I know the science of it. I know the engineering of it. And, you know, right down to how the stitches are made in the cell. But it's still magical. And that's what it was that day. It was just a great opportunity to to have something magical happen. And uh, and Eric made that happen for us as we made it happen for him get out on the water. So I don't know where that all came from. But anyway, it was, uh, <laughs> it was absolutely awesome to get on the water with Eric, um, if he's listening. And... Um, and Paula, who's the agent for Martin 16s here in America, if you want your yacht club to um, have access to disabled sailing, we are working quite closely with um, with uh, sailability and with uh, organizations in North America, which promote getting people onto the water who otherwise wouldn't have. And um, Paula's company, uh, the, the boats that she represents, the Martin 16, I went down and had a look at a couple here at Lunenburg Yacht Club. They are awesome, awesome, awesome boats. Very stable. They can be um, they can be controlled with that suck and blow system, which, um, ooh, and I'm getting so excited about this, I'm banging the microphone. This, this system, which literally have a tube that goes in your mouth, as far as I understand, and you blow and suck into it, it activates a solenoid that activates a motor. So you can sheet in, sheet out, use the rudder, do whatever you need to do. Like it's absolutely perfect. And obviously fantastic feeling of freedom for the people that are able to get out in the water in that way. So anyway, I don't know where all that came from, but it was a brilliant day. If you haven't done it before, if you have sailing skills, go and volunteer somewhere. Somebody somewhere is going to have an amazing time because you help them to to get out on the water in that way. But anyway, uh, okay, so what's going on here? We're, too, we're talking to Nicholas. Hello, Nicholas. So um, he said, so I did a training course to get the basic uh, local license. Uh, my trainer happened to also regularly skip her on a Pogo 40. Oh, that's a good, that's a good boat. That's pretty flat and fast. Um, and after spending the week together, he vigorously insisted I have to join him on one of his future trips because he was sure I'd like it. Absolutely. Realizing that there are some yachts out there, big, heavy boats that nevertheless can go planing has given me uh, and will give me a feeling and feedback and a reaction comparable to similar to helming a dinghy was a revelation. Aha, yes. So since then, I tried to take on every crewing opportunity on class 40s and alike, and I could find and align with my holidays. And in parallel, tried to top up some training all around Central European waters and also a fair bit in England and Scotland recently. Yeah. Um, Nicholas, I have read the rest of your email, but um, I'm guessing the gin and tonic, which you mentioned in the first... <laughs> 
<laughs> you mentioned the first paragraph. It was a big glass because there's a lot more, lot more email here. Oh, he says he's got two questions. Okay, so I'm going, zooming down here. I want to say something about this actually though. He says about going and asking to, um, to charter on boats. One of the best things for me that ever happened after I sailed solo around the world is that I felt I could actually ask questions on a race boat. Isn't that insane? How how utterly stupid is that? That I felt that I, after I'd already been sailing for, I don't know, like, I think I'd done 30 or, no, was it 50,000? I'd done quite a lot of miles anyway when I went to start to work for Clipper. I think it was like 40,000 by the time I started the race. Um, by the time I'd finished Clipper, I was 40,000. By the time I'd done the Velux thing, I was at like 80,000 or 90,000 or something. It was like, I'd done a lot of sailing. At that point, I felt, okay, I can ask a question here. And if, you know, not feel too dumb it's not insane like what a weird sport that it's like almost impossible to to ask people when you're in a in a racy situation and that also comes down to like trying to get gigs crewing on on boats like you know if there's a class 14 in marina do you stand and coyly wait for someone to ask you on board or do you walk over and say hi or i i, I don't know how that goes but i know on the other flip side of it that people that have boats bigger boats that need crew are always squealing that they can't get crew and i just wonder sometimes if there's a if it's maybe something that's happening on the water <laughs> that that makes it difficult because surely like loads of people want to go on this boat but you're in a situation where no one wants to go on your boat so surely it's something you did but anyway the point is go and ask go and go and see people and if they give you you know if they give you the middle finger and they give you a load of attitude then you they're idiots just just don't get involved there's nothing that they know that you need to find out about just go and find someone else just get a lesser boat with a better skipper that's always the way right Anyway, this is just a personal thing. It just irritates the hell out of me. It irritates the hell out of me. I'll tell you why. Because I was thinking about the fact that um, the sailing is not in the Paralympics anymore. You know this? It's not in the Paralympics. Despite everything I've just said, that's what brought it to my mind. It's not in the Olympics anymore. Um, it's not possible as a, as, a, as, a, as a realm of excellence that people could aspire to. And I do wonder with sailing sometimes, say it's like eating itself from the inside out, or it has been for many decades, this thing of like professionalism and as I always say, the white sunglasses, sorry, um, <laughs> I have had to sail with a few uh, podcast listeners, Javier, uh, who uh, were very keen to point out to me, why, why are you so down on the white sunglasses? I'm like, hey, I got white sunglasses, but... There's some people that just do it wrong and they tend to be wearing white sunglasses. But um, yeah, so sailing, you know, it's the equipment that we need to go sailing is very expensive. And the, the, the skills that we need to go sailing are quite, you know, broad and um, and you need to have people you can rely on. And I get all of that. But that's possible. Like, that's not an impossible ask, is it? Like people will learn how to do things. People will go out their way. In fact, some of the most like crazy like batshit crazy people for learning stuff are sailors like myself 10 years I did between like 21 and 31 I read only sailing non-fiction I read a lot but I read sailing non-fiction for 10 years didn't read anything else um I don't have any friends and I don't really know how anything else in the world works but you know sure I read sailing non-fiction for 10 years but people will go and learn it. But just when they go on the water, they're going to have to have a good time. They're going to have to be invested and um, interested in what's going on. And they need supporting and bringing along. If as a skipper or as a crew member, people can't ask questions, they get shouted at, they put 
get all the worst jobs. They get put down. Like, do you think? Do you think they're coming back? I don't think they're coming back. Now, what we're seeing is uh, a, a massive falling off on uh, of subscriptions in yacht clubs, um, which sounds sad on the one half, but then on the other half, I hear that there are so many new boats uh, being sold. If the yacht clubs aren't haven't got these people, that means people are just freestyling. They're freestyling sailing. That's what's going on. They're just working it out on their own. They don't need to go to a yacht club. And that's, you know, I think yacht clubs can be very supportive places where a lot of very detailed information can be exchanged. What I see on like Facebook Yacht Club, what I see on all the different um, sailing Facebook groups I'm part of is people trying to help each other. There's some dicks who have got like, they seem to want to, again, like prove their point, like prove how much they know by putting somebody else down. But you know, we can all spot those people a mile off, right? Just don't go sailing with them. But um, yeah, if you're in a yacht club and you're you're looking to grow that yacht club, people ask me, you know, how do we get how do we get women in? That's what all the guys ask. How do we get women in? Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't know the answer to that, it's probably gonna be difficult for you to you know make it happen. It probably involves not doing some of the things you have been doing. There we go. That's broad enough that only half of us know what I'm talking about. So the the key is to include people and, and get them out on the boats, give them good jobs, let them learn and understand more about what's happening. And then, you know, these boats are in the yacht club and they have a crew and they can go sailing and it's uh, it's all good. But um, anyway, I digress. It's I feel more relaxed doing that when the title of the thing is questions and tangents. OK, so Nicholas asked two questions. So he says, he says, it's a bit unclear to me how you split people up to boat types because Spartan's got Whitbread 60, a Maxi 80 and the uh, Open 60, which is more like a solo sailing boat. So in answer to that, if you're listening, Nicholas, and to anybody else, you can specify which one you want to go on. And I don't really uh, draw any lines like it's it's not it's not an issue. Like the thing is with our boats, they are highly powerful boats. They are very fast boats. Right. And they're very technical to drive. But they have one amazing like special power, which is that if you don't drive them on the raggedy edge, if you just kind of cruise in them, they're unbelievably forgiving. They're unbelievably safe and you can move very slowly in even like very high wind situations because you know how much safety is built into the system. You know, you know how deep that keel is, how heavy that ballast is, how strong that mast is. So if you're on the open 60 and it's going to be tighter, it's going to be more confined, there's less people, That's that's got a different personality to it. She, she you know, lightly skips along in light breeze and is a bit of a, she likes to stick her head in and she's a bit of a, <clears throat> bit of a pig in, in heavy weather because she's got such a big wide bum you know that's she's she's a planing boat but then Weddell of course is very sea kindly because she's got a nice tapered stern as does um uh, the Whitbread 60 Challenger so they've got different personalities so you know you, you can pick whichever one you want if this if you're undecided which one you should go on I would say I would still say go on any of them like it's I guess that's my point like yeah Pogo 40 class 40 sail it safely sail it well instruct people clearly, you know, have good safety procedures that everybody knows you can sail anything. The only time sailing gets dangerous really is when you are outside of the, you know, outside of your, a good skipper's comfort zone. That's, that's when it's getting dangerous. As I always say to people on our boats, if you're feeling nervous, look at me. If I don't look nervous, you can relax. If I do look nervous, then <laughs> follow me when I leave the boat. You know, it's that kind of thing. So if, if skippers are inside their comfort zone and the boats are inside their comfort zone, it should all be relaxed. Okay, what else is he saying? Uh, next question. Okay, that's easy. He's just looking at to the fact that, yes, he was booked on for something else. And can he transfer that through to um, things going on in 2022? The answer, Nicholas, is yes. And we're looking forward to seeing you. 
Okay, cool. Let's go on to another uh, another email. We've got one here from Paul Jolly. Hey, Paul. He says, I recently uh, discovered the podcast and became addicted to them. Had to join the $5 patron to begin with. Well, thank you very much for that. Again, with Patreon, it's uh, five bucks a month. That is something which um, you get a hello letter and you get access to one of the videos. Uh, once every four videos, you can watch one of the seamanship videos just to kind of get a taste for it. Um, oh, that's right. I remember this email. Um, he's... Paul loves listening to the uh, the Slocum podcast, which I've just recorded another one just now, uh, Paul, so that'll be out very soon. But he was um, helping me with my pronunciation of the word corobori. Is that right? Have I got that right now, Paul? Because I called it, uh, I've called it a corobori, which I think I got off a South African guy I used to work for thinking about it because I remember him talking about that quite a lot. We'd have these like weekly meetings and he said it was like a corobori, but I'm thinking he's pronounced it incorrectly. So it's Corobori. It's got that rob in the center of it. I don't. I never mind taking this kind of uh, input. My, I say my degrees linguistics and learning about language and pronunciations, all that stuff is uh, is very very uh, interesting to me. So thank you for clarifying that for me. Um, he says he never heard it pronounced the way that I did. It took him a moment to get uh, what I was talking about. Well, uh, you know, and this is how I create interaction, Paul. This is how I get you to write to me. I just pronounce things incorrectly. <laughs> anyway, he says that um, he's a new sailor, uh, 56 years old. Good man. Welcome. Uh, and he's bought a 42-foot sailboat. He's living on it in San Francisco uh, Bay, I imagine, and hope to sail home in the near future. Four years away, most likely. So I'm soaking up bits and pieces of your knowledge. Well, you're very, very welcome for that. 42-foot sailboat from San Francisco to Australia. I think um, I think you'll probably get a few people to volunteer to help you with that one. If you want it to be less than four years, I'm sure there's quite a few people that help you make that happen. But thank you very much, Paul, and thank you for your support over on uh, on Patreon. Uh, who else have we got? Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, Matthias. Okay, Matthias Papola. Pa Matthias Papola. Is that right? Papola. I like that. Um, he says about the last episode that I did on the podcast, which was about navigation. Have you heard this one? It's uh, E is for estimated position error. I, it's about two hours, 10 minutes, and um, whew, there's a lot of information in it. Uh, somebody asked me uh, on Facebook how much research I did. They said it sounded like there's a lot more editing. Uh, Research-wise, there's a couple of bits I checked out, and there was a few bits like the thing about um, Charles Hapgood talking to the US Hydrographic Office. I actually read that bit out. There was a few bits, but like, a lot of it I already knew. I think I went through and had a look at some of the earlier things when you're talking like the Kamal and the Anomon and the Backstaff and the all that stuff. Like I kind of know it. Um, I had to update myself on who Azakiel was, 1050, the first guy to look for latitudes of European cities and all this stuff. But um, uh, I enjoyed making it, but I actually had to cut it down. That's what a lot of the editing was. It was me cutting it down. So... Uh, sorry if it was a bit chop and, uh, choppy for you. You couldn't kind of follow, but um, a lot of information in there. Uh, I think a few people had to listen to it through quite a few times, but um, that's the point, I guess. You know, the other thing we've got going on is that all of the podcasts I've done, all 53 or whatever it is of them, we've got transcripts for them now that have been written out by a, a company. And um, I've got to say, that's a flipping miracle that I, I issue the podcast, I, I publish the podcast, and literally three minutes later, I get this email from the company. Oh, remember, maybe I should do like an advert for them. <laughs> oh, here we go. Transcripts. What's this one? Where are they from? Podscribe. There you go. Podscribe. I, could, I should practice doing adverts, right? Isn't that a way that you monetize podcasts? God, I don't know, because it's not monetized in any other way. 
Uh, I'd like to do an advert for Podscribe. Um, they are Australian, I think, or they have a .ai after their name, which I don't know what exactly that means. But um, three minutes after I trans, three minutes after I issue a two and a half hours nearly of me talking at quite high speed, they send me back the transcript of what I said, and it's pretty accurate. Um, 90, 95%. It's sometimes a bit funny. Like this, I, I've got it right in front of me, right? It's a speaker one, zero seconds. That's me. Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner with me, Chris Stanwell Major. Good so far. And welcome to another in a series of ABC of Boating. And this week we're on the letter E. Now there was a little bit of debate going on. This is perfect. So it has completely and utterly perfectly. Sometimes it has got some pretty funny errors in it. But um, what we then do is um, go through. We're checking all, all checking them all out, and then we're going to make a new uh, website in the end, which is um, just called CSM the Mariner, and it'll have merchandise there. It'll have. Um, uh, the seamanship training course, which we're, we're building up, making that syllabus of videos that people then go and buy if they want. Um, there'll be the the uh, blog, the transcripts from the podcast, all that kind of stuff will be there, plus links to discounts and all that sort of stuff. So that's coming. But um, these these transcripts are unbelievable. But um, yeah, I just thought that was a miracle, isn't it? What a fantastic time to be trying to run a, uh, a business like this. You know, that's the other thing. I don't know where you are in the world. I'm speaking to you right now. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm, I'm stood in my house in Nova Scotia at my desk and just going dark. I'm looking out of the garden here and by the power of technology, I'm able to speak into this microphone and then you're able to listen to it at your end. And by speaking to the microphone and a computer in Australia converts my words into writing. So somebody who doesn't speak English as a first language can access what we're communicating about or if someone's deaf they can understand it and communicate with it like it's an amazing time to be um trying to do this stuff so anyway <laughs> matthias what do you say he says thanks very much for the uh for the uh, the navigation one my absolute um pleasure uh, some people i think were interested to hear some of the information about um I think I said pre-Columbian during the, the podcast, but pre-Columbus um, interaction between uh, countries and the possibility that ancient civilizations may have traveled. It's That is something I'm very interested in, the whole thing, to the point that I was going to almost do a podcast on megalithic architecture. And I say it's something that was I've been studying for about 25 years now. And um, I'm glad to see that some people were interested in it as well. He says, so are you saying that any given time the GPS will tell you how accurate it is at that certain moment and do all GPSs have that feature? All GPSs will have a, a figure on it, which is called the horizontal dilution of precision. So how do we work this out? Imagine there's two lighthouses on either side of a bay and there's um, a lighthouse out at sea behind you on a stack. Very solid, very understood, very easy to navigate from items which are divided up at about 120 degrees each. You get a nice accurate bearing on them, those lines come together and you can be very sure that your precision on this fix is very good. Now imagine that we're working out the difference of distance from the satellite based on the time that the signal left the satellite and the time it was received by atomic clock loaded on the satellite. Those um, annuli are overlapping in your area and that's like taking a fix of the satellite, right? You have one ring, which is a certain distance away from that satellite. You have another ring, which is a certain distance away from this other satellite. And a third ring, which is a certain distance away from the other third point behind you. They're divided up by 120 degrees, like two lighthouses on two headlands and one in the sea behind you. It's all, everything's going perfectly, okay? 
now let's change the geometry. Now let's have it that it's just the two headlands and the two lighthouses. If you have just two lines of position, it's very easy to realize, oh, there's quite a lot of error in this. So I make any errors in my angles here, then my position's gonna be off. Equally, you're on a hyperbolic system where you're dealing with annuli, rings of dislocation from the navigation point. If you've only got two satellites, then it would be very difficult to understand exactly where the, the two rings were overlapping each other. Okay, now we don't do navigation with just two satellites, but there can be variances in the geometry of where the satellites are. Like I know on, um, on the Maxi Weddell, because the chart plotter that's at the nav station is below decks, yes, it can see up through the Kevlar deck, but it can't see through all the mechanism of the grinder, which means it has a blank spot. So if in the sky above it, there's a satellite which is lying behind that metalwork of that uh, gearbox on the underside of the deck from where the chart plotter sits, it can never see a satellite in that position. So suddenly the spread of available geometry of satellites is changed. Now you, okay, well, no problem at all. I've got, um, you know, an external antenna. Absolutely, but if those satellites exactly where you are are lined up in arrangement where you don't get a very good um, uh, angle between them, if you haven't got a good dissipation of angles between them, you can end up with pretty crummy um, uh, fixes. So if you have a value of horizontal, um, dilution of precision and HDOP value on your GPS, which is less than one, then that's pretty ideal. That's about as accurate as it gets. It doesn't really matter what the number is. Let's just take it as this value. If it's less than one, then it's pretty, pretty perfect. If it's from one to two, then it's very, very good. If it's from two to five, it's okay. And if it's anything more than five, it's starting to get pretty pretty low for navigation, right? Certainly you can get values which are over 20. So, um, the dissolution or the dilution rather of precision is something you should be looking at. But what a lot of um, manufacturers do is that they translate that, uh, that, that value, which is almost meaningless, that just that value that may or may not be one or whatever it is, they take it and give it a name, which is more useful. And they, they monitor it in um, units, which we can understand. So meters or feet or yards, or whatever you're asking the system for. So a lot of chart plotters, if you go to, if you have some kind of information bar which is able to be displayed on the top or the side of the screen, you can go into that and go to edit. Now, each different system is going to be different. If you're on the Raymarine one, then you're going to select the bar and you're going to select menu and you're going to go to edit and it will give you a big list of all the things it will do. It will do the speed, the wind, the hull temperature, the boat speed, navigation things, and it'll have GPS. And GPS, it should have in there, it'll have time, date, um, course over the ground, speed over the ground, cross track error, and then it probably have EPE, or I've seen it, what else have I seen it called? It was called something else on another chart plotter I used recently, I can't remember what it was. But it's basically estimated position error or words that add up to that occasion. And a lot of them have it now. So have a look on your unit um, and, and then it just gives you this figure. It just allows you to understand how accurate what, it, what you're doing. So then you, then you have to be aware, like, how accurate is this chart and how accurate is the GPS and how, how accurate is the setup I have on my boat. That's the other thing. Like, is the GPS crowded out so it can't see half the satellites? Is the um, chart uh, up to date? Like, obviously, electronic charts now, you still have to update them. It's done wirelessly. We still have to update them. And what am I, I'm saying update them, but contracting it to datum, which makes me think of the fact that the World Geodetic Survey, the WGS84, which is when all the different nations or most of the nations of the world came together and said, okay, this is the 
um, the geodetic framework that we're going to work off. This is the um, geodetic frame of the world and then we're going to take what's in our local region and we're going to adjust it so it fits in with the world's geodetic survey. Um, when you're on your chart plotter and it says which datum would you like to use, you put WGS84 unless you're in very specific areas and you know you'll get higher accuracy from that local uh, datum. I remember when I did my Yachtmaster exam, I challenged the Yachtmaster exam by um, basically chartering a boat. It was Brian Beggs, who was the winner of the 2000 Clipper race, very, very skilled round the world skipper. Um, I came to him with my experience and with my you know, qualifications to date. And I said, I don't want to do, I've already got the theory. I don't want to do the like five days out on a boat. I just want to see if I can pass the exam. So I got on the boat at six in the evening. And when I got off at 12 at night, I had my yacht master, um, but they put me through the ringer. And one of the things they did as we, we anchored the boat, I, you know, I anchored the boat with the crew, did everything. I'm checking like where we are and I'm putting a, a guard zone around while we're on anchor and making, you know, standing orders in the logbook and all that stuff. And then I look again at the chart plotter and now the boat is on the land. It's like in a church on the land up Solent Water. I'm like, what on earth is going on with this chart plotter? Like, why is it reading so far out? And they're all, I can remember now, they're all sitting around the table like with pizza, with big eyes, like looking at me with these grins peeking out from behind the pizza. And I can see, okay, they've done something. So like, okay, what would cause the boat to be like in the wrong place? Well, I can see that we're safe. It's like, ah, oh, they've changed the datum. So I went and they changed it like the, I think they changed it to the Hong Kong datum because they, they knew I'd been working there. So they thought that I wouldn't twig that. But obviously, unless, you know, the, who who is the last person to use Hong Kong datum after 1984? Like nobody. So um, I don't know how we got into this. But anyway, the, the, <laughs> the estimated position error on your GPS, yes, it can be a number. It can be a number in meters or feet that you understand. Combine that information with all other possible pieces of information to make the best possible navigation uh, choices. And uh, I think you should be, I think you should be well on your way to being nice and safe. But thank you very much for the email, Matthias. That was great. Um, last one here, I'm going to go with, oh man, another name. It's got dots above it. So we've got, we, now you can go jogging, but you don't go jogging, right? Now you can have, this name is Juicy or Yussi. So J-U-S-S-I, I'm going to go with Yussi. And uh, Makala, Makala. It's the A's have got dots over them. Whew. Okay. Well, I hope that you're not offended by my my murdering of your of your name. But you can write to me again and tell me how to pronounce it. That's great. So you see, hello and thank you very much for your uh, email. Okay. So the point that's being brought up here is very important. It says, first of all, thanks for an excellent podcast. I've been bringing it on lately. I've been binging on it. I've been bringing it on it. My goodness. I've been binging on it lately and it's quickly becoming one of my favorites. Well, thank you very much. Hats off to you. Uh, I love particularly the interesting mix of philosophy, science and your extensive experience. Well, it's just a combined kind of mass of stuff I've done wrong that I'm going to tell you about so you don't do it wrong. So if we all agree, that's what's called extensive experience, then yes, I am very extensively experienced. Um, it says, uh, I was listening to the MOB, uh, MOB episode recently, and it was for sure a full-on, oh shit, I don't know anything type of thing. Well, <laughs> that's honest. He says it's very humbling, but you know what? That's the best possible place to be at in any of this stuff. Go, I don't know that, and then go and find out what that means. And then you plug that hole, right? And then you go and find another hole and you plug that. And that's back to kind of what I was saying about 
sailing and the fact that if we don't allow people to ask questions if we push them down if we make it difficult give them the crappy jobs treat them badly shout at them when they come on the boat they're never going to come back how can they ever get better right you've got to go through that bit where you don't know and then you learn you know then you learn the stuff right so you're in the perfect place it tells me um and he says, uh, something that I started to think whilst listening was how can I apply these things to my own context where I almost exclusively sail shorthanded with my wife and a soon-to-be 12-year-old boy, with occasional guests, of course. After many years of cruising the Baltic Sea in the Med, we are planning on taking on the liveaboard lifestyle for a couple of years, including a couple of ocean crossings, potentially. Awesome. Safety is number one priority for us. So I was wondering if at some point you could talk about the aspects of seamanship in shorthanded situations. Obviously, you are at a disadvantage and need to make a compromise compared to a fully crewed situation. But it could be super interesting to hear your thoughts on this. So maybe S is for shorthanded. Keep it going and all the best with your projects. Thank you very much. You see, that is fantastic. And please do feel to write to me and uh, tell me how to pronounce your name. Uh, and uh, oh, he says it in the Baltic, so maybe like Swedish or Norwegian or what other countries are up there? I don't know. It's so cold. Whenever I go to the Baltic, I, d I don't look around. I just got a hat on. I've got all my waterproofs on. And they tell me there's a summer, but I've never been for that day. So um Okay, so single-handed. Is there something which we could quickly say about single-handed sailing? Well, uh, Robin Ox Johnson once told me, and he's absolutely right, double-handed sailing is more than twice as easy as single-handed sailing. So single-handed certainly is, um, is, is a very different kettle of fish. It sounds like you're short-handed and you've got your wife and you've got your son. So I think the first thing is um, if they love it, if they like it, they will want to know more. So the best way of being safe is to make it enjoyable. Does that make any sense? Because if you're trying to make it safe and they hate it, then your methods are just going to like come across as draconian and then they'll hate it even more, right? If they like it, which I'm sure they do, um, then is there a way potentially for them to like learn stuff as they go along? Certainly when you're dealing with 12-year-old children, um, they're at an age, as we all know, where they can be both startlingly grown up and then revert almost instantly back to some of their most basic uh, uh, behaviors, right? So you kind of that knife edge could go either way. So to deal with things that accidentally go wrong, you can still consider putting netting around the side of the boat. It depends how big your boat is um, and how useful your guard wires are. I think that one thing I'm realizing on all of our boats is that the the previous international standard for, for um guard wires for, for lifelines around the boat was 600 millimeters. And now that's been increased on certainly on the race boats to 900 millimeters. So whilst that may not have trickled down to the everyday life, um, having higher guardrails is something that really helps. 600 millimeters, that's like right behind my knee, right behind my knee. It's like literally a tripwire. Um, if they're a little bit higher, that can be helpful. Could be expensive to get the extra bits put on all the stanchions and the boat could look a bit janky because of it. But you could talk to people about the fact that if they stay low uh, when it gets rough, don't sit on the guard wires, don't really put all your weight on them. I'm always very nervous when people like, they really hang on to the guard wires, particularly even like on the leeward side, they're hanging on to the guard wires. It's like if that one thing gives way, we've got a big problem. They say, oh, it's very strong. It's not gonna give way. It's like, well, yeah. But if your hand slips or if anything happens, so staying away from the edges and making the edges as safe as possible is something that I always try and like 
make sure of. Um, how can you do that with young kids? Putting netting around the boat is really good from their height. Then they're not going to fall over it like an adult. They're going to slip under it. And if you put um, netting, even like where, particularly where you come out the cockpit, uh, sorry, you come out of the, the companion where you're in the cockpit, that bit to left and right there, to port and starboard there, that's a classic place for people to come out be kind of dealing with stuff, life jackets half on off, and they, they slip and fall. You could do simple things like netting off the side. And I'm sure there's a lot of good articles online which are looking at like how to make your boat child safe, uh, and, and I'm sure that's in there. Um, making life jackets something which is like a badge of honor, like a piece of equipment that you put on. There's no there's no kid going BMXing that is not like super proud of his helmet that he's chucking on, like it's a piece of kit, right? So like what you do before you go on your BMX. And life jackets kind of need to be that way. Um, as you know, I'm a big proponent of the uh, Team O life jackets. They're a UK-based company. Their life jackets can be used as your out-and-out final step kind of life jacket in the EU. It's not quite at that point in North America yet. They're still going through testing. But the convenience with the back toe life jacket is that if you do go over the side, as I've spoken about many times before, then you'll be towed backwards in the water. So getting somebody um, to not go near the edge of the boat making the edges of the boat as safe as possible by raising the stanchions or by putting netting in place, very important. Um, when they, if, if they or when they go over the side that their life jacket deals with that and tows them backwards is very important. And I think also you can take a book from um, uh, John over at Attainable Adventure Cruising and he's always talking about uh, safety um, lines uh, jack stays that are closer to the center line of the boat so it's physically more difficult for you to end up over the guardrail so centrally mounted jack stays looking at the height of the stanchions if that's possible to change netting uh, life jackets all those things but uh, one thing i would add in here just before we finish with this this can be the last email of this podcast um, one thing we did talk about in the mob podcast is getting those big painters poles and then putting a boat hook on the end of that but the most common thing that i see when you cannot recover somebody from the water you get close you get like within 15 foot and then you can't you can't get the person or you get within 10 foot and you can't get the person just get a longer pole just get a longer pole so you can reach further using a boat hook to rescue people from the water that's nuts that's like saying the only way of restarting this man's heart is to connect these jumper cables from my car it's like yes clearly you know it sort of will do it maybe in some situations but a boat hook is for picking up moorings if you're trying to get a person and the specific issue you know you're going to have to deal with is that you may not get close enough just get the longest pole you can. Just practice like getting a, get a big heavy rope, coil it down nice and tight, um, attach it to a, a buoy and then put it in the water and practice reaching for it and pulling it in. Yes, it's not the full weight of a full person, but just get used to getting the boat close, getting that person alongside and then finding out, okay, how are we gonna get this person out of the water? Is it a halyard? Are we using the end of the boom? Have we got a sling? Problem solved, problem solved, but just make sure there's ways that people don't fall off the boat Make sure there's ways that they can stay connected to the boat. Make sure there's ways of getting them out the water if they do get separated. And um, But keep doing what you're doing, man. Just keep asking questions. As I said before, all of the uh, all of the experience I have is just a wild conglomeration of all the things I've done running in the past. So <laughs> just be, be a good skipper, be a good dad, be a good partner. Make sure everyone's having fun and they'll want to learn more about it and it will make it so much easier. But um, 
Yeah, well, that's that's the end of the emails for now. I'm sorry if I've missed out your email. If you haven't heard your question answered, then just send it again. I won't be I won't be offended. We've certainly come through a uh, the eye of a needle recently with the company. Loads of new admin systems and the new websites up. You can see that, of course, at um, www.spanoceanracing.com. We're going to be going to Norway and the Faroe Islands and Iceland and Newfoundland and. We've got the round the world event, the Ocean Globe race now. We've got people booking to do legs on that. Of course, you don't have to go all the way around the world, but you can be involved in a big international event. And um, they're going to be racing from Southampton in 2023 down to Cape Town, from Cape Town across to either New Zealand or, or uh, Australia. It's not been decided upon because we need to understand how COVID is going to be affecting all this going forward. Then round Cape Horn, up to probably a port in uh, South America, which could be Rio de Janeiro, or it might be um, Punta del Este, and then on back up to Europe. So if you fancy crossing the Southern Ocean, if you fancy getting involved in some kind of um, madcap uh, dash sprint in a big boat down the Atlantic, have a look at the website and see if the Ocean Globe race is something for you. But um, that's the end of questions and tangents uh, for this time. Thank you very much for all your emails. If you have a question you want answering uh, or some Thing you want to correct me on i don't mind it's csmthemariner at gmail.com and i will endeavor to read it out if i can but um until the next time i hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing you are safe and sound and that you're enjoying the last rays of sun in the northern hemisphere or enjoying the first rays of the sun if you're in the southern hemisphere and i will speak to you in the next one cheers